0: This hour of the Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts.
2: Hey, here's a fun baseball story as we track the Cardinals through spring training. The, uh, the Pirates and the Orioles were in an odd position today. Pittsburgh was up 7-4, to four, top of the ninth inning. The uh, umpires left for the day. But Brandon Hyde, who's the manager for the Orioles, asked to keep the game going just to get some work in for his team. So the two teams went out. They played like a Sandlot style game with no umpires. I love that by the way. And that was earlier this afternoon. Uh, Mark Viviano who is a sports reporter tweeted this out and says, what's missing? Orioles and Pirates agree to play bottom of the ninth without umpires. Game was over and he sort of gave the details. But how cool is that? That's really cool. That is pretty awesome right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. I guess the umpires, are they on the clock where they (laughs) they just think,
1: you know, it's, it's time Time to go at this point, I don't know what how that works in spring training.
2: Ah! Uh, didn't Abby just come in here and put something yeah. here for me? Where where is it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Here she comes. Okay. I, I was gonna try something here. Here it is because I can never. That's very smooth. You know, my last two days of broadcasting have um, sent me back to perhaps when I was just starting in broadcasting because I sucked then and I probably suck now. I can't do anything right. <laughs> Just ignore that. Act like it didn't happen. Ladies and gentlemen, and we'll uh, welcome Sue into the fold here. Fred Bottomer is back from Las Vegas. He survived the trip.
1: I did. I came back with a little bit less money, but I had a great time.
3: Fred, what was your favorite
1: part? Um, Well, first off, just seeing all the attention, it was the rock and roll. marathon so you know a big event thousands and thousands of people were gathered they ran up and down uh, the strip uh it was i think half marathon so 13, 13. miles
3: 13.2 or 13.1 yeah, 13. let 1. me ask you this did they just go back and forth like how many times no. up and down the strip oh do no you have to no go? just
1: once they went okay. um they started like in the middle of the strip and you went out ran out to the airport t- into the desert turned around came back you went on, you know, then you went way down the strip, you know, to the other end of it.
3: Okay. So, well, Fred, Yeah. Like, wait, I didn't think she was going to... Now, you went to watch your wife run this That's thing. right. I did not think she was going to let you run it. I mean, let you watch her run it. Did she change her mind? No,
1: she didn't let me watch her run it. I, 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 <laughs> I saw her off. I stood, you know, when she got into the chute to take off, I watched that. Um, and then I kind of peeked in on different parts of the race to see if I could see her. You know on the overpasses watching okay. people run by never did see her um but then she uh, texted me along the way and tell me that good. she made it so it was great
3: well that is good. she had did a great you, time did you eat some good food what did you have what we, was the best the
1: best thing we did we went to the gordon Ramsay burger restaurant inside mm. planet hollywood
3: i am mm. so, so jealous i know and
1: the burger was amazing Ugh. So that totally lived up to its reputation. So that was my favorite um, thing that I ate there. Uh, We went to see an event, you know, one of the shows. It was Cirque du Soleil's Ka, which is...
3: I'm sorry, are you saying Ka? Yeah, Ka-K-A. Oh, okay. And
1: it was uh, medieval something or another. Um, And those are huge productions with all sorts of... Well, Mark moving items and, and things like that. Did it's you it's see huge. Ka,
3: Mark? Whatever that is, that's the one I have not seen. No, I haven't oh, seen okay. One. Well,
1: the interesting thing about this was, you know, we're in a huge auditorium inside Planet Hollywood, and there's, you know, thousands of people sitting there. The production had a technical mal- malfunction halfway through it, and the stage was stuck, like upside down or, or sideways, because oh it moves a lot. And all the actors are the, not the actors, the artists had to climb off of it and they had to make an announcement. Please stand by. We're having technical difficulties. So Holy for 20 cow. minutes or so, you kind of just sat there and everyone's trying to figure out what was going on until it started working again. And then all the uh, Cirque du Soleil people could continue doing their stuff. I'd have been How a little long? bit afraid to do, you know, my act Man, oh swinging God. around if, you know, they had technical difficulties earlier. But it was really good once it was done. Um, and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, All right. The other thing, I think everybody was telling me to win big, you got to bet big. And Fred, I'm not a big better when this it comes is to good though.
3: Stuff. You should not be a big better. Oh,
1: no, I'm not.
3: By the way, that's not true.
1: That's not true?
3: No. Yeah. Thank you, Mark, because that doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, I guess we have different levels of betting big. So the five one. Five bucks,
3: Fred? <laughs> talk to me.
1: Exactly, Sue. Yes. Exactly. Yes. One time, the last time, I put $5 in it. I only played the slot machines. Everything else was too intimidating. Um, I played the slot machines. And the last time I put in a $5 bill, and I thought, well, I can maybe get five $1 bets out of it. And um, I hit the wrong button, and it bet all five, <laughs> oh, and it oh, doubled. Fred. So I doubled my winnings. I won ten dollars, and that was my biggest oh. win of the day of the whole Maybe week.
3: There's something to it. Yeah. Right. So, all but right. Mark
1: says no. Well,
3: Mark would know. I have to tell you. If Betting... he says no, then just I would just go with
1: it. <laughs> I love the Luxor. That's a a beautiful resort. Uh, Caesar's was great. You could get into Caesar's, and you're there forever because you can't find your way out. It's just <laughs> such a nice... All of them are like that. All of them are hard to... I hear they don't have exit signs in the in well, in the in the casinos. That's and, probably true.
3: Right, because right? they don't
1: want you to find an easy way out. This seems you're, like a fire hazard. It's exactly a fire hazard, yeah. and, and one of our tour guides was telling us, oh, we took a tour, a three-hour tour of the Hoover Dam, and that oh, was a lot of fun. I did that yesterday.
3: I and, do love that.
1: And that tour driver was saying that there's an arrangement between the casino owners and local law enforcement that they don't have to have the actual exit signs
3: Well, you're uh, into you're, casinos. You're breathing in all that uh, piped-in oxygen. You're just <laughs> happy, you know?
1: Yeah. It, no, it, it was fun. Everybody seemed to be having a great time. I had a good time.
3: That's good to know. I'm glad you went and that you had fun. And did oh. Marie, Did your wife eat a carb afterwards? She's been non-carb. <laughs> yeah, she did. She she, ate yeah, okay.
1: she, she, ate, she did her share. I, I was waiting for her with, like, all all the sort of bad food that she wouldn't eat. So when Good. she got to the finish line, I was there with all the bad stuff. Hey, I flew out of Mid-America Airport. First time I've ever done that.
3: Oh, how was that, oh, Fred?
1: I loved it. It was great.
3: Huh. Okay. Um,
1: it, it's Allegiant Airlines. Um, and the same people I flew out with on Friday in the plane, it seemed like I flew, ba- flew back with on Monday. Because huh. the same people were sitting next to me, behind me, on the side of me. They were it, was like being, it was like racers. It was like being on a school trip. Yeah, everybody was racers. Yeah. It was yeah. like being on a school trip. I knew, you knew everyone. You found out how they did, where they ate. So that was Aww. a lot of fun. I just, I enjoy the experience of, of flying out of Mid-America.
2: Okay.
1: It's smaller. It's something very manageable. It's
2: I've good never to done know. it. I don't think I would, but I'm glad you had a good experience. <laughs> which, is right, which is
1: right by Muscuda. Uh, let's
2: do this here. Uh, maybe
4: they- These allegations are deeply concerning.
2: Does the president have any comment?
0: We're not going to comment. It's not clear messaging. No, 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 no. And now, Sue's news, Sue's news. Brought to you by Sue.
3: On this day, I was going to say, maybe if it wasn't I, I just uh, that makes me nervous. On this day in history, 40 years ago, and this does have a, a little bit of audio. In 1983, at the end of its 11th season, the final episode of MASH aired on CBS. Wow. It was a special two and a half hour finale. It was watched by 106 million people. I was one of those people. Fred, did you watch it? Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. Watched it at Mark, my parents' did house.
3: Did you? I'm pretty sure I did, but yeah, I honestly you don't remember. Don't remember. It was a record 77% of the TV viewing audience was tuned into this thing. I mean, this is because, Abby, again, we did not have that many channels i mean i'm not sure that you could accomplish this today there's way too much streaming and other things to think that 77 percent of the tv viewing audience was tuned into something is just mind-boggling to I me. i think i
2: became a bigger um because i was a mash fan but i think it happened when i went to school when i went to mizzou so i don't remember what i'm, I'm sure i probably watched the finale just because everybody did but yeah. i i became more familiar with the show like in the mid to late 80s just because i was watching all the repeats
3: Oh, That's true. And it was something good that was on that you could watch. And 39 years ago today, in 1984, Michael Jackson won a record eight Grammy Awards. And of course, it's because of the and he won album of the year for Thriller. And he won record of the year for this song. I could think of the video. Every time I hear that, that's all I think about is the video of them. <laughs> Can't, oh, come on, who does not like Beat It and that whole thing? Mark, did you play it eight thousand times, or can you handle to listen to this album?
2: I could handle it probably, but yeah, it got played a lot. There's so many good, good songs off it. Just that sort of summarizes, I think, that period musically. There's no it doubt. It
3: does. It does. The fact that he won eight Grammy awards including Album of the Year for this, uh, pretty much says it all. I mean, if you had something uh, to present that year that uh, Thriller was up for a Grammy, good grief, forget it. By the way, today is also National Pancake Day, Fred, in case oh, you want that. I like that. You're going to like this more. IHOP is recognizing it by offering a free short stack of buttermilk pancakes. Now, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure you have to buy something in order to get that, but uh, just letting you know if you want a little dinner.
1: You see, I it, don't know how much, how much you know. When we were in Vegas, I looked at a breakfast someplace, and it was like a short stack of pancakes was eighteen ninety nine. What? It's like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I think insanity. that was pretty, pretty much normal, though.
3: Well, That's insanity. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what they are here, but it's not eighteen ninety nine. If pancakes are not your thing, it's also National Chocolate Soufflé Day. If you would prefer that, and I found this. Oh man, this is very interesting to me. There is a story on thedrive.com about a patent for which Ford has applied. Now, I'm talking about Ford Motor Company. It is called Systems and Methods to Repossess a Vehicle. And here's the thing. It appears to be software that would disable a vehicle in different ways if that vehicle needs to be repossessed. Now, if the buyer misses a certain number of car payments, maybe the air conditioning is shut down. Or I assume it goes, you know, on like if there are no payments, they could just shut off the motor. If it has autonomous driving capabilities, it could drive itself to a convenient place to be towed or drive itself actually back to the place so they don't have to tow it at all. To me, it's genius. And the system could be installed in future Ford vehicles or they could just be patenting it so that they could own this technology. But either way, somebody just saw that they had applied for it to see and But you know, they don't really know what they're gonna do with it, but it's genius. It's kind of like that OnStar that I've never had a vehicle with OnStar.
1: Yeah, me neither.
3: But it seems like, uh, you know, if they could just shut it down, I'm kind of surprised that they haven't done that yet. I had no idea. It wasn't patented. And it is kind of genius. I kind of
1: find it funny that they'll turn off your air conditioning rather than just lock you out.
3: Fred, they're just going to
2: torment you a little while. I I had OnStar many years ago, and I, I liked it quite a bit, actually. But it became, you know, the technology with everything else became so good that I felt like OnStar wasn't necessary although if you're like in the middle of somewhere and you can't get a hold of people again that's it became because I think it was done through satellite right I don't know if so if your cell phone went down you had an emergency there were some backups there that made you feel safer Uh, but you had to pay for it too so I think I got rid of it eventually
3: well yeah and I get that I mean just the fact that they can find you wherever you are I find it interesting that Ford has applied. Now, Ford has not come out and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to install it. But this article on the drive.com said, you know what? They're patenting it. So who knows what they'll do with it? It's just interesting to me to think about. Oh, And there was a story out about a sheriff's office in Kentucky that has a brave and honest toddler to thank for helping them find a fugitive who was wanted on drug charges. They go to a home on Friday, right? To serve a warrant. All these adults in the house, none of the adults would say whether or not this woman who was wanted on warrants was in the house. And that's when a toddler stood up and said, it's good to be honest, we shouldn't lie. And said, oh yeah, she's in the room next to the bathroom. (laughs) Wow! So they got her, thanks to the honesty of just a little toddler. You gotta think that's adorable. So good for that child, who was a boy, by the way. Not that that's here nor there, but, uh, you know, at least they were teaching him good things. Well, not on, uh, <laughs> but even though you were wanted for doing other things. And finally, it's Sue's News. I can't remember if I've done this one, but every time I see it, I'm, I, I think, what? I've never heard this. Okay. During World War II, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Philadelphia Eagles both had so many players go off to war that they merged for the 1943 season and played as. Are you ready for this? The Steagles.
1: <laughs> I had no idea.
3: I read that today and I thought I've never heard this before. And then as the day went on, I thought, wait, have I? And then I just can't. Remember. I don't know. But they were known as know Philpin. You haven't heard it either. I, I don't know okay. that I
2: do remember that.
3: It's incredible. They were known as Phil Pitt, and it was uh, really just the fans who called them the Steagles. They won five games and did not make the playoffs. Again, that was uh, 1943. I just love it. It's one of my favorite uh, facts ever. And that's it for Susan's All right, awesome. We have Amber
2: Athey coming up here in just a couple of minutes. We've had Amber on the show before. She's the Washington editor for The Spectator, but she's got a new book out called The Snowflakes, Revolt, How Woke Millennials hijacked American media. We still might hear from Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey was at the Supreme Court today. He might check in. If not, we, uh, we still have Ilya Shapiro in the next hour, the Director of Constitutional Studies at the Manhattan Institute. He'll break it down. Went pretty well if you're looking for this whole thing to be thrown out. We'll have some audio of some of the justices as well.
5: Selling a little or a lot.
2: Still lots to cover here this afternoon. Dr. Buzz Hollander, haven't had him on in a few weeks, family physician. He's one of our COVID go-to guys. Is COVID still a thing? Uh, Not really. But all the aftermath still is with um, the COVID origins. He's got some thoughts on that. Ilya Shapiro in the next hour will talk about the Supreme Court arguments today. Missouri involved in this case with our attorney general, one of the six states, to sue The Biden administration for the executive order on student debt forgiveness. So we'll get into that. Plus, an audio cut of the day. I'm very excited, though, for this segment. Amber Athey, who's been with us before, has a brand new book coming out in just a few weeks called. It's a great title. The Snowflakes Revolt. How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. Amber, welcome back. She's with The Spectator. She's the uh, Washington editor. I like the title of the book. How are you this afternoon?
4: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your background. I know I've had you on to talk about different issues, but you focused, and I've done this for, um, boy, it's been 25 years now, on liberal media bias ever since Bernie Goldberg wrote his book in the late 90s, Bias, and sort of outed some of the things happening on CBS News. And since I've been around the media, they are my peeps, and I've been in news, and I've been a news director, so I know this area pretty well. But you've you've talked a lot about some of this bias stuff, which is what led you to this book, isn't it?
4: That's right, one of my earlier jobs in media was cover uh, yeah, in media was covering the media um, for the Daily Caller. I did that for several years, and um, what I really love about this book is that I got the opportunity to talk a little bit about my personal background as well as do some reporting. So the first third or so of the book is actually about my time in college being a really outspoken conservative on campus at Georgetown University. And a lot of the people that I encountered there and the, the way that students acted towards the administration is such a parallel with how uh, people my age now act in regards to the media in terms of staging walkouts, um, having sit-ins in newsroom leadership office, sending emails, launching PR campaigns to drag publications through the mud, So that they will adopt these progressive policy positions it's very it's just so similar to what happened when i was in school and i think people will will read the book and you know really see those similarities
2: yeah you had i mean i want you to kind of share the experience but you were canceled not once but twice weren't you
4: (laughs) probably more than that honestly but (laughs) yes it's, uh, it's not apparently not an infrequent occurrence um the first time was Several years ago when Media Matters dug up some high school tweets that I had sent to my boyfriend at the time. And, um, I mean, they were admittedly offensive jokes, but they had pulled these things from almost a decade ago with the express intention of trying to destroy my life. And then more recently... Um, I was fired from a radio program uh, here in D.C. for making fun of Vice President Kamala Harris's outfit at the State of the Union. So I've definitely experienced firsthand the tactics that these uh, illiberal progressives use to try to shutter debate and basically shut down anyone who they see as a threat to their ideas.
2: So you've probably written about, sometimes I, I forget all the specifics of the cases and the guests that I've you know spoken with over the course of the months and years here on this radio show, but it was even a guest recently, and this is sort of representative of some of the things that have happened in the news, where it was a professor who finally had had enough and said he triggered the kids in his this was at, you know, academia in college, where this professor said when doing the course on race and he was a progressive and a liberal that the the kids were st- were struggling because the word colored was used from a piece of history. So they weren't, they weren't triggered because the professor said something that was offensive. They were triggered because there was a reference in an actual historical document from decades ago that used the word colored, and that was outrageous for that professor to use. So we need to do something anti-racist to counter that. It's mind-boggling when you hear some of the reasoning behind these snowflakes and how Big a wossies they are it's unbelievable really
4: i it's so true, and that sort of thing happens quite often. um actually, the reason that the New York Times first started shifting its editorial line towards this idea of anti racism was because a uh, a contributor, I believe it was had uh been in a similar situation where he was using the n word while quoting someone else, so obviously wasn't using it himself but the New York yes. Times staff just yeah. revolted, and they had all of these meetings about racial sensitivity. They launched the 1619 project ostensibly, uh, partially in reaction to this moment. Um, so that's not abnormal at all, and we're seeing more and more frequently and more aggressively that the left is really eager to eat its own um, if they're if they're deemed to be too centrist or not far left enough. Um, it's it's happening all the time at these media outlets, whether the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, they repeatedly call the people who are more classically liberal and the way that we understand it, because they're seen as not being hardcore enough.
2: So I I started in uh, well I started in radio in 1981. I was only 15 years old, but I started doing you know news when I was at the University of Missouri in journalism school, and then I ended up in news and I was a news anchor on a music station. Went to WTMJ in Milwaukee eventually, and I I started there doing news, and and then I did a talk show. But I bring this up because I've been around a lot of journalists, like I think real journalists over the decades. And what used to happen is look. I knew because I had friends in the business. I knew where people were on politics. Right. You don't know as much as you do these days with social media. But the people I worked with over the, uh, the decades were pretty solid reporters, good journalists, depending on you know, no matter where they came from politically. They were still doing their job and they felt like the truth and having a good deal of skepticism was important to the role that they were playing. That's done. That's gone because now, and I think you point this out in the book, it's not about hiring people like that. It's about hiring activists. And you see it in every tweet from reporters all over the country. They're not reporting. They're agenda journalists.
4: That's correct. You will see people who had internships at left-wing activist groups being hired by media companies. And obviously you can't have the expectation that these people are going to come in with some bevy of journalistic principles, they are there to try to impart their will, their message on the American people, and abuse the media platforms as a means of doing that. And I do think that there are still people at these major media outlets that might be left wing, but still kind of believe in these. Uh, in putting that to the side when you're reporting out a story, right? Um, but unfortunately, they've quickly become out—not not necessarily outnumbered, but the small minority of people who are really activisty at media outlets are so vocal and so aggressive that they've created a culture of fear. So people who do believe in traditional journalistic principles are self-silencing. Um, this was something that Barry Weiss talked about in her resignation letter from The New York Times, was how there are good staffers left, but they're so terrified to speak up against what is increasingly becoming mob-like behavior from these younger staffers.
2: You, you uh, Now, I have not read the book yet. And I really do want to read the book. It comes out in a few weeks. But one of the notes um, that the publicist sent out says that you write about what current journalist credentialing process is and can it be redeemed? Now, credentialing means, I'll, I'll use sort of a, a sports analogy here. If you're a sports reporter here in our building, for example, let's say you're with 971, You want to cover the Cardinals. You have to apply for a credential so you can be, and there's different levels of credentials. Sometimes you can be in the press box. You can be in the locker room. It depends at the level. And the same thing with politics. You get credentialed for different things and events if you're a member of the media. Not everything requires credentialing, but at certain, you know, more structured events, you have to have uh, some sort of press pass or be okayed to be in that particular room or world. Right. So when you're talking about this process, what are you talking about here?
4: Right. So it used to be the case that reporters actually came more from working class backgrounds because it was a job that did not require a specific credential. But now in order to work at any of these large corporate media outlets, you have to have at the bare minimum a college degree. And in a lot of cases, they'll only hire people who actually um, get an advanced degree from a journalism school. And an entry-level journalist position only pays maybe $50,000 a year, and that's sort of the high end for an entry-level position. So you're basically recruiting people who are wealthy enough to both afford a a college degree at a prestigious university and possibly even higher education beyond that, but then willing to have a low starting salary. So they don't necessarily make up for that money that they spent getting the education in the first place. Oh, I see.
2: I see. Yeah. You're, you're talking about, so you were kind of in a different place with credentialing, just talk about the people that end up in the industry, right?
4: Exactly. Because over the years you end up getting a more wealthy, left-wing, coastal, city-based class of people who become journalists. And very quickly, um, and this is evident in so many of the stories that they choose to cover or not cover, the voices of middle America have lost. been drowned yeah, out from right. major media it's the outlets. The
2: flyover states, you know, I always use, you know, I've said this many, many years. What would be wrong? And uh, I, I, I'm very encouraged by the House right now is going out and they're doing actual committee hearings in different parts of the country. I talked to Jason Smith, who is the new chair of uh, House Ways and Means, about this. But I've always thought, hey, what would be wrong? And Fox does this more than anyone else. They go out to the cafe in Ohio or Texas or Missouri. Mm-hmm. But what would be so wrong about the New York Times or one of those other? publications, coming here to the Midwest and learning something about how people live their lives. From this perspective, Amber, I think you can appreciate this. Whenever I read about climate change and how I'm I'm shocked that the uh, earth is still here based on what I've heard for the last 30 or 40 years, but they always talk about the big trucks that people have and how evil the big trucks are. Did they have any clue how people... In, in my world, use big vehicles. They have big families. They're going from <laughs> one place to another that might be 20 miles away. You can't take the train. So it's just amazing how tone deaf and out of touch they are with the way that people, real American people live their lives.
4: They truly do not understand. There was an article in the New York Times, and I know I'm picking on them a lot. Oh, go ahead. That's okay. Because they, I mean, yeah. they really are just the perfect example of a lot of what we're talking about, but they published an article in the beginning of the pandemic where they were basically trying to throw rural America under the bus as the drivers of the spread of COVID-19. And their measure of this was how far people were driving away from their homes. So the implication was that people who lived in rural areas were contributing more to the pandemic because they had a higher average mileage that they were driving away from their homes on a daily basis. You know as well as I do that if you live in rural America, you have to drive further away from your house in order to go grocery shopping, right. to get to work, to get all of the necessities that you need to live. Some places don't have Amazon Prime, right? You have to actually leave your house in order to participate in society. And so it was just such a misunderstanding of the lifestyle that so many people in America have. And then to turn it around and actually punish them for it made it so much worse.
2: So, boy, there's so much I want to dig into here, and I'm going to make a request that I read the book, and maybe you come back with me and we talk about it a little bit more. I have, at certain points, Amber talked about Taylor Lorenz from The Washington Post, because she is one of the biggest embarrassments out there, and I know that you write about her in the book. Can you explain Mm -hmm. to the audience who Taylor Lorenz is and why she's significant in this discussion?
4: I actually have an entire chapter about Taylor Lorenz, and Uh I really didn't want to do it because I don't think she deserves the attention, but... Just like the New York Times on an individual level, she really is sort of the beacon of what modern journalism has become because she is this really uh, a person with really wealthy parents. She apparently spent time at a Swiss boarding school and then um, has worked at places like the New York Times, now is at the Washington Post, and she has used her journalistic platform as a means of advancing cancel culture. And what I mean by that is pretty much every article she writes is done with the intention of destroying the, the livelihood of a conservative that she doesn't like. And not even a conservative, but even sometimes just personal beasts with her. So she went after the CEO of Away, which is a luggage company, basically accusing her of being a mean boss. Um, and that that was really when Taylor Lorenz first became a household name. And then she was the person who um, who doxed the Liz's TikTok account, who reposted the TikTok videos from progressives, Which is a brilliant account, account. right?
2: Yeah, she tried to out them. I think that backfired, though.
4: It did. And and all that account does is post other people's videos. Um, But Taylor Lorenz tried to make it out as if she was some bully who was leading to higher suicide rates among transgender people and just all of these ridiculous accusations And she was also the person who first publicized the TikTok videos from Kellyanne Conway's daughter, Claudia, when she was a minor and created this massive family feud and got clicks off of it. So she's really just a despicable person. Yes, she is. And, who, you know, I, yeah, I understand.
2: Was, yeah. I get why you were conflicted, because you, you hate to give her attention. I'm in this position a lot, too, when I see stories about her. And, you know, in the problem is in her media world, there's a lot of, audi- you know, The Washington Post has a big audience, and people don't understand they're not unless you're listening to a show like this or reading your book or watching Tucker or something like that, they don't know how dangerous, and I would say that she's a dangerous person because you talk about manipulation and journalistic malpractice. It is on full display with someone like Taylor Lorenz. Uh, Amber, I am short on time. I can't. I really do want to read the, read the book and want you back. It's called The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. Do you actually make the case, one final question here, that the media can be restored and restructured because I've given up. I have absolutely given up. Given up hope I'm, I'm being sad i'm being honest i just don't see i don't see a path for this coming back to a uh, significant way where we actually cover news and we don't have agenda-driven journals. i think it's the time has passed
4: the final chapter does offer some recommendations first of which is that newsroom leaders need to frankly grow a pair and stand up to <laughs> these little bullshit, bullshit- uh, they're part of the but problem I, these right. newsroom <laughs> leaders yes right. But I also suggest that it also wouldn't be so bad if it all just burned to the ground.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right about that. Look, good luck with it. It's called The Snowflakes Revolt. It's coming out on March 21st. We'll have you back if that's cool. Thank you,
4: Amber. That'd be great. Thank you so All much. I right. appreciate
2: it. Like many of you, I struggle uh, from time to time where I think, how is it possible that people are so stupid? For example, when we we're talking about Amber, where you have, let's say you're a college student, you're going off to higher education, you want to learn things about the world and be educated. And then one of your professors uses just in, in a, a book or in a historical document, the word colored or Negro comes up because the professor's not using it. He's not dropping that, but he's pointing out how it was used in the past. And you're so triggered as, an 18-year-old and 19-year-old snowflake that you have to report it to the administration and try to cancel them. I mean, What kind of people are these? What kind of people are those who want to mutilate children and abuse them at the gender clinic at Wash U? But on the student loan thing, the same thing comes into play. How? I, I, this is just beyond me. I don't understand how anyone can make the case that when you take out thousands of dollars in loans and you sign the paperwork that you would pay it back, that you shouldn't have to pay it back. So that case was argued today at the Supreme Court, Andrew Bailey, the AG of Missouri, one of the six AGs that was involved. But listen to the defense of the student loan. I think many of you listening, I think most of you are sane and you understand how crazy this is, like Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib. Our
4: government's supposed to be about people, right? They shouldn't be making off money off of us going to school or seeking edu- higher education. It shouldn't happen that way.
2: Well, you can you can argue about whether or not the student loan program should be restructured, but I mean, the bottom line is kids took out loans, parents took out loans, you got to pay them back. This is a guy, he's a congressman from New York.
0: Why the hell are we paying for education in the first place? <laughs> College should be free because guess what? When we get out, we are contributing to this society and this democracy and this economy and making it stronger.
2: Yeah, college should be free because what? that That's his reasoning why college should be free. And by the way, I'm all for, if you wanna talk about community college and funding that, I think the, the president, this president talked about that. That's a different topic and one that you probably can engage people on the other side on, but forgiving student loans is crazy nonsense. And Ilya Shapiro, who is a constitutional expert at the Manhattan Institute, a uh, regular guest on the show, is going to kind of prove that point at 525. we got Sean Spicer coming up tomorrow, by the way.
0: Get more at
1: 971talk.com.